Actually, I'm more afraid. I'm more afraid of wrecking Kim's schedules than yours, Cameron. No offense, but she's uh, she's called Mad Dog for a reason. I have so much paperwork. <laughs> you guys don't understand how scary. much. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, so I press record. Oh. So I'll let okay. Heather bring us in and. Um, Hello and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarek of Merrick Law. My co-host is Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Trying out a new camera. So if you're uh, listening to the podcast, it's really exciting. You should head over to the YouTube version and see uh, what I look like. Yeah, it's a, a new angle of Evan. It's uh, it's so far so good. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, we're joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Hi, Evan. Great to be on the program today. Evan, I think your camera is great. Your skin looks very, like, it looks almost filtered. So um, you'll have to give us a lead on what camera you're using right now, and maybe it's time for us to upgrade ours. Yeah, you look even more youthful than usual. <laughs> it's, a Lenovo, it's a Lenovo 510. I had to get a new computer and then I was like, you know, what other things can you throw in there? And it's like, well, I can always use some webcams because, you know, not just for this, but also I do, um, you know, Zoom meetings with and like big four-way meetings in my conference room. And so I needed another webcam. So I don't have to like pull my other one from my office to my conference room. So I thought I'd give it a shot. It's looking good. Looking good. Uh, Access to Justice is a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health and finance, focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers to entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube on our A2J podcast channel and online at a2jpodcast.com. So Kim and Evan, I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest. Um, we've got Cameron Brinkman joining us today. How are you, Cam? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, are you okay if I do a short introduction uh, of you, Cam? <laughs> sure. That'd be great. Yeah. I love hearing awesome. about myself. So. Okay. Everyone does. So. so either you're about to engage in a little bit of brinkmanship. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> there you go. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> uh, Cam is a partner with Pisco Brinkman LLP in Edmonton, Alberta, which is a boutique firm experienced in providing business valuations, guideline income determination, pardon me, income determinations, and other related services, primarily in the area of family law. He's a chartered professional accountant, a chartered business valuator, and a registered collaborative professional, just like Kim and I. Um, it, he also is the father of three boys. So I understand he spends a lot of his spare time in and driving to and from various hockey arenas around the Edmonton area. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, my wife and I have a 
combined Uber and logistics company where we specialize in moving children to and from sporting activities. Um, <laughs> we're, we're pre-revenue right now. We're not profitable yet, but okay. time, time will come. Okay. If you want us to add a little, we can put a little, run a little ad along the bottom. Uh, when no, I, I, I don't want to drive anybody else's kids. <laughs> limit it, I guess. But. All right. Well, you know, maybe we'll save the, the, uh, the, the kid driving for future episodes, but I'm really excited and so pleased that you're here to join us today um, to talk about child support and more specifically how we go about determining folks' income for the purposes of child support. What are we going to do to help? Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess, should we just launch in and get started? Um, I, I guess we've done previous episodes before on child support. Um, and the basic information I, I guess that everybody needs to know is that child support is based on the payor's income. Um, so that's why it's relevant. Um, so don't we just like look at the tax return and go from there and it's just easy peasy? And sometimes you can. Um, they, uh, once you have income, there's actually for child support, it, it's quite a mechanical calculation. You, there's actually a table and uh, you, the table's just got income on one axis and the number of children you have on the other axis. Uh, usually people, pretty well understand how many kids they have. So that's kind of easy to figure out. Um, the income for some people is pretty easy to figure out. And, and then you just look up where they intersect and that means X dollars per month and there's your payment. Um, and that's, and that those tables are created by the government and they're inflation adjusted on some semi-frequent basis, but that's, that's how it is done for the majority of uh, people that pay uh, child support. Um, of course, those people never come to my office when it's easy. <laughs> I, I get asked when it's complicated. Uh -huh. and, and the issue um, arrives it, is, is what is income? And, and ever, all the, all the uh, everyone understands that the, it's a pre-tax income number. And when you're an employee of a company, it's kind of just your line 150 or, or now line 15,000 on your tax return. Right. There can be some adjustments. So if you've got some dividends or taxable capital gains in there, there's some what we call schedule fee adjustments, but those are largely mechanical. There's no subjectivity involved. And, and um, say no one calls me for the easy stuff or, or anyone in my profession that does this work. We, we all get called when it's complicated. And what makes it complicated is primarily when, when the payer spouse owns a company. Um, and there's a lot of nuances about uh, what, how, that, how that can change whether or not someone's trying to manipulate their income for purposes of child and, and spousal support obligations. Um, so there's a, a, a very defined or well-defined term called guideline income. So it's not just your income, what we're talking about is guideline income, which, which guideline income doesn't show up on your tax return or on anywhere else. You have to figure it out. Um, you start with the tax return, you make some adjustments that are, are um, non-subjective, they're mechanical. But there's other adjustments that are subjective and, and can have a dramatic impact on, on what someone's guideline income is and then what their support obligations are. And these are the things that we sort of talk about routinely when we're going through a, a dispute. So. Hmm. so it's not just as easy as looking what's reported on someone's tax return always. Sometimes it is, but not always. If it was always that easy, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't admit to that. So. <laughs> I'd, be out, I'd be out of work. <laughs> it's very complicated. It's hard to do. You need to hire a professional. So. 
Okay. So I'm going to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning. You said, so we start with that line, well, 150 or 15,000 or whatever it's called now. And then you said there's some mechanical adjustments. So what would folks be looking for in that regard for those sort of easier adjustments to be making? What are those basic ones? Well, um, so there's a few. Um, the uh, and I won't go through them all, but some easy ones are, are the more common ones. So in Canada, if you if you sell something for more than you paid for it, uh-huh. you you have a capital gain. So, um, but in Canada, only half the capital gain is taxable. So if you right. buy something for 100 bucks and sell it for 150, these would usually be stocks of some publicly traded company, but it could be anything. Yeah. So if you buy something for 100 bucks, you sell it for 150. In the year that you dispose of it, that you record the sale, you're going to have a $50 capital gain, but only $25, half of that will show up in your tax return in your line 150. So the guidelines say, rightly so, that your your the guidelines are, I guess guideline income is tried tries to determine the amount of income you had available for support, and since your line 150 has only got half of that capital gain in, we put the other half in as well, and that and that just makes sense. Um, another common adjustment, and then this is more common for privately held companies, but any any company that has a any person that has a portfolio of investments may receive dividends. When those dividends are paid, if a company pays you a hundred dollar dividend, it's actually included in your tax return at what we call a grossed up amount. The amount of the gross up uh, depends on the type of dividend, but let's just say for simplicity, if you get a hundred dollar dividend, in your line one fifty will be one hundred and twenty five dollars. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's still okay. Don't, no one should think that they're getting hurt by that because you get a credit for it later. But um, if we're starting with line 150, there's, that would include 25 bucks that you never had access to, that never enhanced your ability to pay support. Um, so one of the Schedule 3 adjustments is to remove that gross up. So there'd be other ones too. If you're the recipient spouse, there are, there are times when the guideline income of both spouses uh, is relevant. Um, the, the, spousal, or the spousal support payment that you receive is taxable if you get if you get spousal support, but that should be excluded for the adjustment in, in Schedule Three. So there, there's a few others, but those are more common ones. Okay, okay. So those are kind of the starting point. Um, and then you said things get a little more complicated when someone owns a business, specifically the payer. Oh, Evan, do you have a question? Or yeah, well, it's related to where you're going, Heather, um, mm-hmm. but also related to the last thing that Cam was talking about, which is dividends. Because a lot of people that are self-employed uh, on their own corporation will pay themselves by a combination of dividends and and um, T4 income, I guess is the way you would say it. But mm-hmm. So Cameron, I just wanted to uh, get have you dig a little bit deeper as to um, why it's grossed up in the first place, dividend income onto your line one fifteen thousand, and then uh, I think that'll probably explain why we then. Well, I think it's already pretty clear why you ungross it because if you didn't actually have that money available to you, then it makes sense that we're not going to use that for income purposes. But why is it? Why do we get some percentage added on to line fifteen thousand? Um, first of all, it makes you think you're wealthier than you are. Um, but I don't, that's the purpose. Um, so there, I mean, this is a kind of con- uh, complicated concept, but there's, it's, it's accounts referred to it as integration. So, uh, there are two levels of taxation. If you own a company in Canada, if your company can pay tax and then you pay tax on the income, the company distributes to you. And it should be 
the, the idea behind integration is that the total tax you pay after you receive the dividend or salary from your company should be the same as if you had earned it directly, or it should be close. There shouldn't be a significant advantage or disadvantage to earning your income through a company or personally. Okay, that, that's the idea. Of course, the federal government has tax rates that apply to all of Canada, and each province has their own rates, and, and the rates differ province to province, and the, there's graduated tax rates, a graduated system of tax rates. Um, and so integration is not does not work perfectly. Um, part of the gross up on the dividends is to give um, consideration to the fact that you're going to get a credit for taxes paid by the company later on in your tax return. So there's a, we would call it a dividend gross up and then a, a tax credit system that sort of offsets it and net you're in the same spot. So I guess the simple ways to say it's a, a mechanism to try to achieve integration. So my takeaway here is that it's basically a system devised by politicians to keep accountants employed. <laughs> <laughs> Just add it here and then we'll take it away later. Take it back there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But you feel good at the start, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my, under, my understanding from back in taking uh, tax law was the whole idea of what you called integration is corporations are taxed lower in Canada. It varies, as you said, from province to province. But I think in Alberta, for example, I think we're 15%. Is that the on like the first? Uh, no, it's a little lower than that. I mean, oh, it's lower. it depends the prevailing government, how it changes. Sure. Um, but it used to be when, probably when you took it, it was 15%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, cause NDP were in power while I was there, while I was at school. So, um, okay. Even lower than 15%, whereas like your personal tax rate, the first bracket is I think, uh, something like 23%. Uh, yeah, I'm 25, I think, but yeah, don't yeah. quote me on that. Yeah, bad. so like, in other words, it's like, oh, hey, if I just pay myself through my corporation and the corporation's paying income tax, I'm saving a lot of money on taxes. And if, so it was, concept, if it was that simple, everyone would do it. There, there's, right. a, there's a whole bunch of rules to, to, um, to, to make it fair. And, and then the, the people who spend a lot of time on taxes and, and uh, for clients who have a lot of zeros behind their uh, notional income they're trying to distribute, uh, the, those inefficiencies in the integration system are where tax savings are to be had. Oh, okay. So you can still, you can still tweak it, but the integration, the idea is that it's supposed to el pretty much eliminate yeah. any advantage there. So it's just like, okay, thank you. But, but if it works in Alberta, it's not going to work in Saskatchewan. If it works in Saskatchewan, it's not going to work in Alberta. Right. And so every province is a little different. So it's pretty close. And, and today there's not a huge advantage to dividends versus salary, um, which is a, a common, at the end of the year, people always go see their accounts and say, well, how much do I take? And, and it's largely a decision that you would make with your accountant in order to minimize your overall tax burden. Um, there, it's not a, as big a deal anymore as it used to be. We used to talk about bonusing down to the small business limit. And uh, now it's because of the two types of dividends, it's kind of, it's fixed most of the inefficiencies. Okay. Thanks. That's uh, I can see that we just kind of like scraped the edge of this can of worms ready to explode, but uh, that's, I think that's good enough for our purposes here. Remove the gross up from line 150. That's, yeah. uh, there's a message. <laughs> that's right. In summary. <laughs> um, okay.
I had a year. Sorry, go ahead, Kim. Well, I was going to bring this back to the basics a little bit. Like if somebody hasn't seen our podcast before they, and they're coming to this, they're maybe planning their divorce or right in it. They are curious about what kind of help that they can get if they do press the button. Can they afford to press the button? So is it that there's two types of support payments that people get? And if you have children, you qualify for child support. Doggies and cats don't qualify for child support. And then people would go to an accountant or would they go to a CBV for these calculations, Cam? I know you have both roles. Um, so for the person who's brand new to all this, where do they, where do they, con- who do they contact for this type of help? Um, talk to your lawyer first. Um, most of the time it, it's fairly simple and, uh, and your lawyers can do the math and, and maybe, you know, something's a little complicated. One of them will give me a quick call and I have calls all the time where we just say, you know, that's in or that's out. Um, but, uh, and I would say most of the time you, you can figure it out that way. And, and most importantly, people can understand it. Um, I think what's, what causes a lot of problems is people don't understand why this is in or out for child or spousal support. And um, before you can calculate how much spousal support you have to, you have to establish that there's an entitlement to it. And that, that's a legal determination. It's, I don't, I don't get involved in that. So, you know, Heather and Evan could, say, you know, you are entitled or you're not entitled. Um, that's an opinion. And, and uh, on the files I'm involved in, people tend to have different opinions on that subject. <laughs> yeah. Most so, of the time the yeah. answer is, the answer we will give is it depends. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when they have different interpretations of the same facts, they, uh, you know, one side will call me and say, well, if, if we do establish an entitlement to spousal support for, for this duration of time, what would that look like? And, you know, we need the guideline income in that case. And we punch that into some software that, you know, considers some qualitative things that kicks out a range. And you might say high or low on the range and then a higher low on duration and then figure out that's what we think you're entitled to. Um, like I say, spousal support is way more subjective uh, than child support. Child support is quite, if once you have income, guideline income, it, like I say, you can't really, people can mess around with what they think their guideline income is, or we can debate what your guideline income is. You can't really debate how many kids you have. People tend to have a good handle on that. Um, but, but spousal support, there's some subjective factors behind it. There's no table. Um, so length of the marriage, uh, roles and responsibilities during the marriage, there's a bunch of other factors that Evan and Heather would know way better than I would. <laughs> yeah, we could certainly do a whole, uh, I think we could probably easily do an hour just on entitlement. So um, definitely that's the first hurdle that needs to get over is entitlement. And then once that's established or not established, but you want to know how much you might be paying if entitlement is is shown. Um, yeah, Cam, someone like you can help out to talk about the amount. Um, the other elements are... Um, duration um, for spousal support too. So sometimes we ask um, for some help on structuring spousal support too, right? Because you could pay monthly, some people pay quarterly, yearly, sometimes a lump sum payment is appropriate or desired um, or uh, more advantageous for some reason or another. But I think we're maybe going to get to that a little later in our discussion. Does it make sense to hold off on that discussion? Sure. Yeah, because there's still other questions I had about uh, guideline income that we hadn't got to yet, Heather. 
okay, Evan. <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I'd gotten away from the hard stuff. You're going to let me go. <laughs> um, so you talked about uh, capital gains and dividends. What about how do you adjust or, or why is an adjustment necessary for situations like income splitting? Um, yeah. And, and what is, what are capital dividends? Okay. Those are both, uh, not well understood topics. Um, and, and I would say there's not 100% consensus in, in my profession on those topics. Okay. Right. I, I would say, uh, there's still debates to be had, but pretty soon everyone will agree with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Thanks to this uh, podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, so spreading spreading the good word here is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, so first up, uh, sorry, yes, two things: capital dividends. Second, the um, first one was what did you income ask? splitting. Income splitting. Income okay, so what is income splitting? Right when you're when you're, um, I don't like the term, but people use the term intact family when the family's intact. It sounds like a dog before they go to the vet, to my mind. But um, <laughs> when when the family is together before divorce, it may be the case that um, uh, the one spouse is involved in the business and uh, the other spouse is not. Um, but in order to minimize the overall taxes to both parties or to the family, we allocate some income to the spouse that's not involved in the business. Okay. Um, so whether that's a bonus or a dividend, um, and, and historically we used to, we used to try to get, uh, even adult children involved into, owning uh, non-voting shares of companies so we could do something called dividend sprinkling. And the idea being, uh, because Canada has a graduated income tax rates, you pay less tax at lower income if you have adult children who don't have income because, for example, they're in school, you can kick them $100,000 of dividend and they may pay, whatever, say $25,000 in tax, whereas if you'd put it on your tax return, you'd pay $40,000 in tax. You've saved 15 grand just by doing that. If you have three kids, and the spouse, you know, that's 15 grand times four that you could, you could save. And that, and that was worthwhile doing. Um, there, there's a couple of reasons why you shouldn't be doing that anymore. And one, one is thankful to our friend, Mr. Trudeau. Um, so a few years ago, the TOSI rules, the tax on split income rules came into play, which basically said you can't do that stuff at, at, at a, you know, with over, without oversimplify, to oversimplify it, um, you can't do that anymore uh, unless you can really support that the payments were fair. Now, whether or not people still do, that's a different issue. But in some of our periods of time when we're reviewing spells of support and we're looking, one party is advancing a retroactive claim. So they're trying to get spells of support going back three, four, five years. Some of those years would reach back before 2017 when the TOSI rules were not in effect and you could do income splitting. And in fact, some people are still doing it or we're, we're, we're still doing it subsequent to 2017. So they're saving some tax. So if we pay the spouse, if, if the owner of the business or the person that's involved in the business pays 100 grand to the spouse and they save $15,000 in tax by doing so, the first thing is we put that income is, is the payer spouse's income. So we allocate that back. And the guidelines have a provision where payments to related parties should be added back and you could deduct the fair value of their services. So if that spouse got paid hundred grand, either dividend or salary, and they didn't do any work for the company, it's straight hundred grand add back. If, if they did work, but it was one day a week and, and they opened some mail, maybe that's worth 10 grand a year. 
So you would add back 100 and deduct 10, and it would be a net $90,000 add back. And that, so that's the split income. The idea is the, the family before the divorce may have been splitting their income between the payer spouse and the recipient spouse. And when we're trying to assess what the guy's income is, we should reverse that tax-motivated transaction to just what it was looked like before. And, that, and everyone, I think, would generally understand that, that they agree with. But what people in my profession don't always agree on is whether or not we should recognize the tax savings. So the point is, that the reason why they did that is to save some tax. So having paid less tax, you've enhanced your ability to pay support. Well, how do we recognize that? Well, we gross up the, the split income for the tax savings you enjoyed by doing it. Now, to, to get add one more complication to it, that's relevant in historical years, but subsequent to the date of separation, once the parties are split, they're probably not doing that anymore. Right. You don't, you don't they see that. I mean, we still see some people paying, trying to uh, making their spousal support obligation by causing the company to pay a salary. I suggest people talk to their accountant about that. That's probably going to be offside with the Tokyo rules. But if they are, I mean, that could still be happening. But um, going forward, generally speaking, that is not going to happen. So we wouldn't gross, we wouldn't continue. That's not part of a recurring item when we're trying to predict future guideline income. So the, I know you weren't talking about this just to talk about the TOSI rules, but, and I, I was familiar with that, that that happened, but so it, do the TOSI rules just basically say you can't give a dividend to not a, to someone who's not a third like arm's length person? Well, I mean, you, you can't pay a dividend to anyone that's not a shareholder, right? Right. Um, but you can't pay an amount to anyone who didn't earn it, to a related party who didn't earn it. That, that's kind of what the TOSI rules say, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying. And, uh, and yeah, that's fine. We're okay. We're going to get some. You're going to get some email about that, but yeah, no. Um, the, so the even if they're is, so even if they're a shareholder, if they didn't do something to bring value to the company, you can't just give them a dividend. Yeah, and and the risk is that both parties will be taxed on it. Okay, so. If the CRA felt there was an inappropriate dividend, um, then they might come back and say, okay, well, the recipient of the dividend is still going to pay their tax, but we're also going to attribute the dividend to the person who ought not to have paid it or, or whatever. And, um, and so we call that double tax, and that would be a bad result. So the, while, while some people would say the risk of being hit by the TOSI rules is low, and that's not my opinion, I, I don't know, but, but I've heard that from people. The consequence of being hit by it is high. So if if you get by double tax, that would, would suck. Not not be a good situation. Definitely defeat the purpose of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So we everyone, I mean, take your everyone has their own appetite for risk, right? Just okay. talk to your accountant at the end of the year and decide uh, what what's best for, for you and the people you're looking out for. But in, in the context of spousal support payments or guideline income, we're gonna reverse those decisions because those decisions are primarily tax motivated. So we're trying to assess, you know, the ability of someone to, to uh, pay support. And, that, me, and, if, and if they manage to save some tax, they're able to pay a little more support. Let me throw in a little uh, real life scenario here to see how this would work. I don't, I don't think it's, it's kind of not gonna be too complicated. I hope it should be easy. So um, the husband, and so they split up, the husband's got a new girlfriend who's like, his secretary and hypothetically it never happens in real life that's right never never does them 
guy run away with the secretary. So she's working in the business. He makes her shareholder, you know, they're living together. And so he starts paying her by dividends, basically income splitting legally above board for as far as CRA is concerned, because she's providing real value and everything like that. Um, And they're one household pretty much. So does that then mean from what you were telling me, we would add back that split income or, or the tax consequences or both to the husband's income for the purpose of paying support? Yeah, quick answer is yes. Um, yeah. If you find out about it, right? It's not a, no, you don't always know. Um, the guidelines require, and, and the jurisprudence that I'm familiar with, requires the disclosure. So if, if, you, if you're causing the company to make payments to a related party, and, and I guess people would argue that a girlfriend isn't necessarily related, depending on how, what definition of term you use, but it, it's not at arm's length. Uh, and I think that's the term uh, the federal child support guidelines use. But um, they, the payment should be added back and the fair market value deducted. So the, the, the more common example would be, let's say her salary goes from 60 grand a year to 160 grand a year. Um, well, I mean, she, she's providing service, but would you provide an on-click, would you pay an on-click person 160? And, and we get some subjectivity here, right? I don't know, maybe, maybe she's, she only gets paid 60, but she works 80 hours a week and is worth 120, right? Well, fine. So when her salary went to 160, 120 is the value. Um, so there's a $40,000 add back. Um, that, it, you can't go past zero. You can't go negative that way, right? So if, if you're getting paid 60 and, and you're worth 100, you, we don't throw 40 back at, uh, negative 40 back at the guideline at the payers' bills. So where's all this information found to maintain integrity of, of the data that you guys are using? Uh, like the, the rules or, or the, so we have established in, in previous episodes that there's, there's lacking of trust in the divorce process and Sometimes. people are really worried about how things are going to proceed. And if their spouse or their ex is going to give up the, all the information. So, so my question is, is as a, as a accountant and chartered business evaluator, where do you guys get your information to, to do the math and to run these numbers and, and come up with proper project or your best projections possible? Yeah. Um, I mean, we work with what we're given. Okay. So, so when, anytime we start a file, we have a standard information request we make, we want to see the financial statements. We ask for related party transactions. If, if the financial statements have uh, what's called a review engagement report attached to them, as opposed to a notice to reader, um, that those statements in the notes uh, to the statements um, may have a disclosure of related party transactions, and that's a good place to start. Um, otherwise, we just ask. Um, it's our it's a standard request. Let us know what all the payments to related parties are. Now, if if the party if the payer spouse doesn't disclose it. Um, there's not a lot you can do. Um, we can request general ledgers, which are the supporting accounting records. Uh, and sometimes they, you know, depending on the level of information that the bookkeeper enters when he or she records transactions, sometimes it might be right there. So often, to use Evan's example, we know the name of the new girlfriend. And, and if we get the general ledger in PDF or Excel format, we can just do a quick search and we can find it. But what if, what if um, that name's not disclosed or you know, there, there could it. It's impossible to guarantee you find everything, 
and and when when there's enough mistrust and and we don't believe anything the other person's saying and or we believe the records are not correct like we we don't have this fundamental assumption that the records are correct then really what you need is a forensic expert um and and that's not something i do but there are people in 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 our, in, and even share that my profession that's that do that work where they will dig all the way down and uh and depending on your budget and and uh your the level of your mistrust they can dig as they can dig a long ways will they ever guarantee they find everything no you, you, it's very difficult to find fraud okay but if the payer spouse makes some assertions and if at the recipient spouse spouse's cost, those, some of those assertions are proven false, I suspect a court would have an issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, we just encourage it. But also the other thing to point out is it doesn't make as big a difference as people think it does. Right. So, for example, what if I'm engaged by the payer spouse? I and mean, we just always encourage this to schools and it doesn't. It's not like if we add $10,000 to your guideline income, your support payment goes up by 10000 or 5000 right? And, and it's not worth the incremental legal and professional fees to try to save 50 bucks a month. Like, it just right. really isn't. So, as, as uh, you know, it, it tends, some people view it as a game and they want to win. And um, my experience is someone wins those games, but it's the professionals, not either party to the, to the dispute because we just argue, right? Yeah, not to mention inserting that level of distrust then into the whole proceedings as well, right? And if you've got an ongoing relationship with the other person and children and all that, that's probably not necessarily yeah. what you want to be fostering as you move forward. But yeah, on okay. either side. I mean, if you've got this, if you're going to be, there's ten years to go before you, you're fully done, say, uh, yeah. which is which is after you know the children are no longer considered children of the marriage or the spousal support entitlement period has elapsed or, or both. Um, it's, it's a lot easier if you can get along. Yeah. 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 I think Kim often what, what tends to happen, or at least in all like the juicy, uh, court files, right. The ones that we read about, um, is the, the business owner, has the onus on them to provide everything because they're the best. They know where all the records are. It's their business. They, they, yeah. they've got to provide it. It's not up to the other person to prove it. It's up to the business owner to provide it. And when somebody's reluctant or continuously kind of falls short of that obligation to provide all of that information, it, it, it really does cause problems for the court process and so eventually judges will get fed up and start making things um, difficult for that person by just adding income to them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say arbitrarily because I don't think they do it arbitrarily, but they, they do it. They do it kind of in a, they can do it in a punitive way though. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so the, the quote that I really like on that is, uh, and, and you see this a number of times is that the lack of financial disclosure is the cancer of family law litigation. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I can't quote which justice said that off the top of my head, but, um, but that, that's true. I mean, it, it's, it's a long drawn out process because people aren't up front and, and you're right. The requirement is that you have to be up front and, and where they're not. Um, and, and this, I think it was definitely established in the Sweeney decision that, that justice Youngrath wrote. Um, but where there's not proper disclosure, um, 
counsel for the recipient spouse can ask the court to make what we call the adverse inference. So we, you can say, well, I don't really know what the number is. So we have to guess. And when we're guessing, we shouldn't reward the person who didn't make the disclosure. We better not guess low. And the only way to make sure we're not guessing low is to guess high. And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, I think that's completely fair. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's outside my scope. It doesn't matter to me what, what's fair, but I, in the Sweezy decision, it, um, I think the guy was probably scrambling after to say, well, it wasn't that high. Too late. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, buddy, the, you had the, your chance. Yeah, yeah, the, information, <laughs> the information was located. In a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Found it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've had, <laughs> I've had people case. tell me it's impossible to get the information. And I, uh, like I, I, I share an office with an accounting firm. And I, I talked to the guy. I'm like, hey, honestly, show me on the software how many clicks it takes to mm. get the information I'm asking for. Cause they, they, months have gone by, it's two owners to provide. And, yeah. and I counted, it was seven clicks and it took him about 46 seconds from, from the file he was working on to give me the document. So I, I don't, I don't really agree that this information is hard. I mean, in some cases, smaller business were manual bookkeeping, not that anyone does that anymore, but if you had manual ledgers like paper, um, that would be maybe difficult. Um, but if you're using any kind of, sophisticated accounting software, it's seven clicks to, to get the general ledger, to get the trial balance, to get the adjusting journal entries. And most of the time, that's all the information you need. Right? So. Okay, so you mentioned Sweezy. Sweezy's got a buddy, Cunningham. <laughs> yeah, Cunningham followed Sweezy. <laughs> um, and that was the one, was Cunningham the decision where Justice Grasser made that comment about the cottage industry? Or is that the deed? I can't remember. But they're, they're, they're really getting, in those decisions, what they're really getting at is personal benefits, which has become a hot button in family law litigation since, for, for business owners since the Sweezy decision, followed up by Cunningham, followed by the Deeb, and, and in virtually every case after that. Um, but that's, uh, so I mentioned earlier, there was a bunch of easy decisions or mechanical adjustments when you're doing guideline income determinations. And I said there were two uh, subjective ones personal benefits is uh is is one of those and it's the emotional one it's the one that people many people focus on and and i think probably focus too much on um but the concept here is is simple like if if you have the company and the company pays your income and you cause the company to pay for your trips to vegas or your golf with your buddies or whatever your daughter's braces then the company's income is lower than it otherwise would be the second adjustment that subjective is what are we going to do with that income? But if you run a bunch of personal expenses through the company, um, then we're going to add those back to you guys on income. And the reason you run it through your company is you save some tax. So we're going to gross them up for the tax savings. Same as, same as what we would have done for the, um, uh, the income splitting. And then I didn't answer your question about capital dividends yet either. Now that I think of that. That's okay. Um, Cause I don't even know what those are. I don't want to confuse anybody. <laughs> Well, I can, I can, I'll briefly touch on it in a second, but, but the, but these personal benefits, so we're, to use a technical term, we're going to impute income pursuant to 191G of the federal child support guidelines, which, which just says if, if the payer spouse unreasonably deducts expenses, we're going to add something to their guideline income. And, it, and it's not that big of a deal. Um, people don't understand what personal benefits are. It's, it's a source of huge debate and it's um, more debate than necessary in my mind. Um, again, the disclosure obligation, my understanding of the law, and I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is the disclosure obligation falls 
on the payer spouse, the spouse with the access to the information. It's a positive obligation. You don't have to provide it when you're asked. If you have to provide it, full stop. You don't have to be asked for it. And you're supposed to list out, here's all the expenses in some level of detail. Um, and, and the way it's, the only way it's commonly understood is um, line by line on the financial statements to say included in this account are expenses such as this, that, and the other thing. Of these, none are personal, all are personal, 30% are personal, or go through them and add up $742.27 is personal, whatever, whatever it is, line by line. And on the financial statements, there may be more than one general ledger account group to a specific line item. I think you have to go through each general ledger account and, it, and line by line and arguably year by year. Um, so be very clear that the disclosure obligation is onerous. It is a lot of work. Um, and it depends on the size of the company. It, it may be harder to do if your company's got 50 million in revenue than if it is if your company's got 500 grand in revenue. Um, but it it uh, it makes it it takes time. It can make a difference in in terms of guideline income, and which then makes a difference in the quantum of the support payment. But generally speaking, it doesn't make as big a difference as people think it will. So again, if you add ten thousand dollars to someone's guideline income. The monthly support obligation is not going up by 500 bucks or 100 bucks. It may go up by 50 bucks. And, and routinely on files, we spend thousands of dollars in professional fees um, chasing something that will impact a support payment by 50 bucks a month. Right, yeah, you know, it's funny. I have this file where I'm doing a legal coaching, helping somebody through this. They don't make much money. They have self employed farming income and they used to have uh, a corporate. Uh, like they were the sole shareholder of a corporation who works in the oil field that hasn't been doing much lately. And the other side is like super aggressive about the disclosure. I mean, even when you look at the financial statements that were part of like the income tax return, for example, mm -hmm. you can see enough to see like, okay, there's, there's maybe a couple areas we can look at adding back a few thousand dollars, but even if you add back all of them, and in fact, I even like, I even, that's, that's the starting point when I was helping this person uh, deal with that is like, well, let's just add back all of your cell phone, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it was used for business, but like, let's just add it back because like, we don't need to, like, who wants to fight about this? And it's a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. That is right. So it, like that and things like that. And they're just like, I don't even know if they ever have actually looked at what was provided them. They're just super aggressive. Like, Oh, you're hiding income. Cause you're, you're supposed to be making like $500,000. And then this says you're only earning 30. Yeah. Well, if, if it's a farm, that's, that's not where you're going to find it. Farms are complicated and has to do with the cash versus the cruel method of accounting. You're not going to find it. Cell phones and stuff. This is a pretty yeah. straightforward farming operation though, too. Yeah. Like there was one kind of situation where he bought a lot of hay one year. Right. And so that, yeah. got, that got a spread that's over a couple of years. Yeah, but, that's because of the cash. But the uh, the big benefit in a farm you're going to see is there's going to be running purple gas everywhere through their, through all their personal cars. But but yeah, right. but even but even if you're running all that purple gas, like how much are you, how much can you possibly spend on personal gas? Yeah, like and, and so if you save fifty bucks a month, is it worth arguing about? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think this goes back to that trust thing, though, because I do find that this issue comes up a lot on a lot of my files as well. There's a lot of small business owners in Edmonton and Alberta, pardon me, and often the recipient isn't involved in the business at all. But they know that every time they go out for dinner, payor is taking yeah. out the corporate credit card and paying for dinner on that. They're, yeah, like you mentioned, in Vegas or on holiday or whatever, and the flights are going on that credit card. So 
I think there's always that question mark of like, what else goes on there? What else is in all of these, on all of these yeah. statements? So it's difficult for them to know um, or have a sense of like what they don't know about. So that's a big informational yeah. void. And then I think on the payor side in those situations, Cam, it's like you've identified going through every visa statement and saying like, was this Amazon purchase for office supplies or was this the time that I ordered a golf club to the office on the office credit card by accident, yeah. right? Um, and, and then was that golf club given away to one of the staff members, right? Like right. Maybe, maybe right. it is, who, who knows, right? Like yeah. it, it can be complicated. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, and, and then what I find people, a lot of people do some homework on themselves, right? And, and we try to, to keep costs down. We try to guide them a little bit and yeah. here's what you look for. And, and people always come, They've uh, they found the credit card statement, and here's a charge. That was personal. We've we've got them. We've got the smoking gun. Right? We're, that's we're, right. Now the judge will see everything the way I see it. We're we're good. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, that's one issue. It's not the whole issue. Yeah. Um, second, it doesn't really matter if the company paid for a thing. Okay. And and this people have a lot of uh, different views on on what a personal benefit is. And part of the issue is there's no well accepted definition. But the definition I use. Uh, and is that it's if you if you cause the company to record an expense for something that you otherwise would have incurred personally with after-tax dollars, doesn't matter who paid for it. Okay, so for example, um, a lot of people don't understand a shareholder loan account. You might cause the company to pay for your Vegas trip because there's room on the company credit card and not on your credit card at the time, or or just that's when you had in your wallet when you booked the trip. Um, but if that is accounted for as a increase in liabilities and a increase in the amount owing from the shareholder, so it's charged to the shareholder loan account, which is the way it should be accounted for. There's nothing wrong with causing the company to incur a cost on behalf of the shareholder. That's how it's recorded. That's the issue. If it's charged to the shareholder loan account, there's no personal benefit. Full stop. No debate. Okay. doesn't matter if it's paid on a corporate credit card. Similarly, you could pay for an expense personally that belonged to the company. And it doesn't matter. It's not not a personal benefit because you paid for it. The company would have recorded it to to the as a credit to the shareholder loan and a debit to an expense. Nice. So, if it's the, the simple way to say, if it's not an expense on the financial statement, it is not a personal benefit. It doesn't matter. It's on this the credit card statement. And then to continue on my soapbox for a second, because this is a personal issue for me. Um, <laughs> People always want help. How do I determine? How do I determine a personal life? That's what do I? What is a personal? How do I know? Mm -hmm. And and what's the best thing you should do? Well, I'll ask my accountant. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is, the word personal benefit means something to accountants, um, and it has a has relevant sections under the Income Tax Act. We're talking about operating cost benefits and standby charges and other things. Very regular accountants know all about that. So when when you ask them, they know what you're talking about. What they don't know is that the term personal benefits for purposes of family law matters is completely different. So when we ask accountants, what are my personal benefits from last year? They think they know what you're asking. And for another whole reason, the answer is always zero because, I mean, are you asking them to give you a list of all the things that they know you put through the company that you shouldn't? Like, does the accountant really want to write that on, a, on their letterhead that may find their way to the CRA? No, there's no personal benefits. It's all been accounted for. Everything's good. Right. So um, the problem is we ask our accountants and they, the accountants think they know what we're asking. 
because we use the term personal benefits. If you ask your accountant to, to help you with your disclosure, which is, which is good if they can help, and, and they know the books and they generally know where everything is, but instead of asking for help with personal benefits, then you, if instead you ask, could you help me determine how much income should be imputed to me pursuant to 191G of the federal child support guidelines? Your accountant is going to say, what? And then we will get on the same page to start with. Right? Uh, so that's very your, valuable information. That your, is, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a gold nugget right there. Yeah, because the number of times we get disclosure from the accountant that says none, like how like that's that's half of the disclosure we get. Um, oh. But Evan, like to your example, accountants would think that cell phone is not a personal benefit because it's used for business. He needs it. Great meals and entertainment. That's also business related. Uh, use of the company car, business related. It's all. Whether or not it's deductible in the income tax act has no relevant, virtually no relevance for family law purposes. Yeah. So that cell phone, if you don't have a personal cell phone, the fact that the company gives you one helps you avoid incurring a cost that you would otherwise incur personally with after tax dollars. It's a personal benefit, right? Like it, it's not debatable. It's 60 bucks a month, hundred bucks a month. And we spend hundreds of dollars of professional fees talking about something that is a rounding variance on a support payment. Right. Yeah. There, yeah. A couple of things I want this is bringing up for me. Number one, we have a great resource that we're going to provide here um, that comes from Ken Proudman. That is a Word document worksheet for all about personal benefits in the context of adding income back. And so it's really good. It provides an example of like what it should look like when you're done filling it out. And then it's a bunch of spots for you to do it. So it's got instructions and examples and it's, it's very fantastic. So it should help even the most unsophisticated among us to kind of, to go look at their financials and figure out what should be added back because it was a personal benefit. Second, I just wanted to like the way you're talking about this cam made me think about like, have you guys seen that Shit's Creek clip about writing it off? Wait, 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 what is a write-off? Right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. and he tries to explain it. It's like, the government pays for it. And the <laughs> government pays you back for it. And it's like, well, who pays for it? Like, the, the write-off people. The write-off people, yeah. Yeah, right like that. <laughs> and like, I, I think that I don't, now I don't, I don't think we're all simpletons here uh, that are small business owners, but like, maybe there's a few out there still who kind of think like you can just write it off on the, and then everything will be good. It'll make you wealthy somehow, but well, yeah. there's a, there's this principle that persists that if you save money and you don't spend it, you'll be wealthier than if you just spend it. My dad may have said something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think sometimes people think like, Oh, I can write this off as a, and the thing is if you write it off as an expense and it's not a legitimate expense, business expense, as far as CRA is concerned, um, then if they audit you, of course, nothing like if no, if they don't ever check on you then you're fine, you get away with it. But if they do audit you and they look, then you're, you know, they're going to add it back and you're going to pay taxes on that money. Well, and then you'll pay, and not only you pay tax, there, there's a three-year window for them to check and they never check till year three because they've got other people to check whose window's about to expire. Right. So if you get reassessed and if your corporation gets reassessed and some of the deductions are denied, that gets back into income. So you're sure going to pay the tax. You're also, now you're three years late paying the tax. And so there's an interest and there's going to be a penalty for filing your taxes wrong. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, is that a disincentive? Everyone has their own risk profile. Um, sure. I mean, to put it to some people say, oh, I don't deduct anything that's 
even close. I hate being audited by It happened once. I never want it again. Other people will say things like, everything's deductible until the CRA checks, right? So <laughs> somewhere between that range is, is uh, everyone falls somewhere on that continuum and, uh, and you fall there and your accountant falls there. And as long as you guys are in the same general area, you'll get along well. But right. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that, you know, when we talk about writing things off, it's like sometimes business owners may feel generous about writing things off in ways that they may just end up attributing to their shareholder loan account. Yeah, so to do taxes. To say it simply, you write it off. It saves you thirty. It reduces the cost by twenty-five or thirty percent. That's the. It, it's not free. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's if it's legitimate write-off. Otherwise, you're just spending it out of a different pocket. Well, I mean, if, if you deduct it, doesn't get caught, even if it's a legitimate expense. <laughs> it saves you twenty-five percent. But right. people don't do that. They incur extra money because they, they. I mean, what's what you're saying in that example is they people incur an expense that they otherwise would not have incurred because right. of the write-off. Right. right. So they think it's free. Right. All right. Yeah. I think uh, another thing you mentioned, Cam, that probably bears repeating is, is just because it's allowable by CRA as a deduction from income doesn't mean that it's not part of your income for child support purposes. So that's, <laughs> I just, I want to say those words again, because that's a tough one. I think that folks have a hard time um, wrapping their heads around sometimes too. But I, I mean, I think you've said it in a number of ways so far today too, that, um, um, if it's income available to be spent on the children, then it should be included in your income, right? That's the way the guidelines are going to look at that. So yeah, if there's a guiding principle that it's, it's something like that, um, yeah. the rules are designed to put you in that spot. And, and some, most of the time they're successful and sometimes there's room, but, um, it should be, you know, the, the, the objective here is fairness. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. What are we moving on to next? So next, the next question I have is what is the corporate income allocation? Okay. So that's the second subjective area. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, when I get involved in, in legal disputes and, you know, sometimes we, sometimes people disagree on these things and, uh, and we have meetings to discuss it. And sometimes those meetings are in a courtroom with a judge sitting up a little higher than the rest of us. Um, we have meetings like that too sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and we, and we debate this and, and this is an opinion. So it's not, um, you're not going to get consensus, um, quantitatively when we have a significant disagreement, it's usually this issue. Okay. Um, sometimes it's personal benefits and, and my advice to my clients is always like, just be reasonable. It doesn't make as big a difference as you want, but in a corporate income out. So that's like if we're adding 10 or 15 grand, like, you know, if the payer sells already at 300 grand, it doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, but the corporate income allocation sometimes is hundreds of thousands of dollars that we're allocating. That makes a difference. So we spend a little more time on this one. This is the one that we should focus on. And um, uh, this is the one that sometimes we have debates on. Um, so the idea is if you own the company, you can pay yourself or not pay yourself. Okay. Um, and, uh, in some, and traditionally, if the company has a good year, you're going to pay yourself a lot. And if the company has a bad year, you pay yourself a little. But your guideline income and your support obligations ought not to be driven by what you choose to pay yourself. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, otherwise, someone could just not pay themselves for a few years and they don't have to pay support, right? And if it was that easy, I mean, some people think it's that easy. 
but <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that's not much work to sort of alleviate that concern. Right. So what we do is when, when there is income left in the company that was not distributed. Okay. So after paying the salaries and after deducting dividends pre-tax. Okay. So this is done on a pre-tax basis, not after tax. We take pre-tax income. And if there was a dividend that year, pre-tax income less dividends is, is an amount of what we call undistributed income. So in technical terms, this is an adjustment that may be determined pursuant to Section 18.1 of the guidelines, the Federal Trust Court guidelines. And it's a discretionary adjustment. It's not the case that you have to include it. So if the pre-tax income was $100,000 and there's a $30,000 dividend, we may attribute anywhere between zero and $70,000 to the payer spouse's guideline income. Why not the 30? Because the 30 is already in the line 150. Okay. There may be a timing difference. Maybe it was deducted this year. It's going in tax year next year, and sometimes we'll reverse that. But um, if there's a hundred grand of pre-tax income in the company, revenue less all expenses before tax, and a thirty thousand dollar dividend, they got maybe we're going to allocate somewhere between zero and seventy. Now, how do we determine zero to seventy? Mm-hmm. Um, it's subjective, and there's a lot of factors to consider. No one factor is determinative. No one factor decides carries it all. There's not one ring to rule them all. Um, but for example, if there's $10 million of cash in the company, probably could have distributed that 70 grand without missing a beat, right? So the uh, the quote that I like here, there's this couple quotes is that, um, and again, I can't quote the cases off the top of my head, but there's a quote that says something like, the intention is not necessarily to put the largest corporate shovel into the corporate store. I like that quote. And another one is, um, we're, we're not trying to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Okay. So right. there are very good business reasons to leave some money in the company. Maybe you've got growth plans. You need to buy equipment. You want to, uh, you need your working capital is short. You need to build up some reserves. You know, there's, there's lots of reasons that you may leave income in the company. My understanding of the obligation is that the payer spouse or the spouse who is arguing that income ought not to be allocated should demonstrate why it ought not to be allocated. And with kind of a presumption that if you don't have a reason not to allocate it, it is allocated. Um, Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. There's no base position. When we look at it, we consider a lot of factors. There's a case out of uh, Ontario Supreme Court called Thompson that lists out, I think, like 14 different things to consider. Does the company have cash? Does it have working capital? Does it have debt? Does it have, you know, all kinds of things? And and some of those factors in any one case won't be relevant, and, and five or six will be relevant. And we generally come to a overall set conclusion that this company could or could not kick out some or all of, of the income. So um, it is not the base position that none should be allocated. It's not the base position that should all be allocated. Um, it's not even the base position that half should be allocated, which is a midpoint. And we all know George judges like these midpoints. But, um, you know, if, if there's lots of cash, probably allocate it. If there's no cash and the company's got debt responsibilities and um, revenues are declining and, and there's a whole bunch of bad things happening, um, maybe it makes a lot of business sense to hold on to everything. So because of the, the, that decision is so subjective and because the impact can be so significant, when we have a disagreement, that's usually the area. Mm, okay. Situations where lawyers are just trying to tackle this on their own, like the way it sounds like 
it can be broken up as one's an asset and one's income on paper. If a lawyer takes this and they start equalizing the asset and not considering it as income, do they have a professional liability in that sense if they're not bringing in somebody like you can to really dig in and say, well, what part of this asset should actually be attributed as income? I'll leave that to you guys. <laughs> we always, we always bear all the liability, Kim. And we always good. good. I, uh, always I don't want any fault. of it. It's always our fault. Yeah, but that's but you raised such a good question, Kim, which is, and Cam was kind of like was kind of brushing on it as well, which is okay. Is this property or is it income? Should we count? Because really, I think it's property, but. Cam saying sometimes that property should be considered income because like what if buddy's taking nothing out of the corporation just because not for a good reason. He said, there's lots of good reasons. Like yeah. maybe you need to build up your working capital or you're saving up to expand or something like that. But if it's just, he's just saving it there because corporate income tax rates lower, there's nothing wrong yeah. with doing that. But if you're doing, if that's the reason, then maybe we need to look at that as, well, I guess, I guess it doesn't matter which one you choose, right? Cam, it would, it's just, you got to choose one of them and you probably shouldn't count it as both. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you're, uh, what you're alluding to is what we call the double dip or what everyone calls the double dip in this. We love calling things double dipping. It's uh, that's a whole nother discussion. I can touch on it briefly, but um, the, the idea of, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of debate about this and not everyone understands it, but um, the idea of uh, distinguishing between an allocation of undistributed pre-tax corporate income and property is also different before and after you've divided property. So I'll, I'll say this way. For example, if the data separation is in 2017, we're settling this now in 2021, and there is a retroactive support obligation Okay, from 17 onwards. Maybe they've been paying something or nothing, but we think there's more owing. So I'll be asked to calculate that income for 17, 18, 19, and 20, and or 20 or 21. And in doing so, we may allocate corporate income in those prior years. However, by definition, if it's undistributed income, it is still in the company. So if we're going to divide the value of the company in 2021, it seems inappropriate to notionally allocate a bunch of income in the prior years when that income is still in the company today and we're going to divide it today. That would be double dipping. So prior in the years prior to the division of assets, I generally recommend that even though this is your guideline income, because the guidelines don't say this, there's your guideline income, but I recommend using the amount before the allocation, whatever the allocation is when you're determining the retroactive support obligation. Subsequent to the division of property, you use the, you consider the allocation because the rest of that income has not been divided as property. So, and, and that one's commonly missed. Like there's, um, I, I see that all the time. And cause it's kind of a, like it makes sense when you say it as, as simply as I can say it, it probably doesn't come across as simple, but um, you know, it's, it's, to the extent, if it's already in the pot you're dividing, you don't get a second kick at that on income. Um, so it's important to know whether we're doing a guideline income determination before or after the division of property. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I got, a, I got a quick one and then we probably need to wrap it up because it's, it's okay. we're pushing on here. Um, can you lump some child support payments? No, there, there's quick for you. 
Yes. Perfect. All right. <laughs> child support is the right of the child. The, the parent can't contract out of that right. Whatever that is. I mean, that's, that's, I, mean I see how they're nodding, so hopefully I said something correct. Great legal advice, Cam. Yeah, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah. But, but confirm that with oh, Heather no. or Evan. We'll run the disclaimer. <laughs> People confuse it all the time because you can elect, the parties can elect to lump some spousal support. So that's, you know, as the spouse, that's your right. And if, and maybe you believe your right is X dollars per month over X number of years. And maybe you're willing to trade that for uh, uh, amount of dollars today. And, and that's common. Um, yeah. Uh, when we're doing that, you know, we consider the time value of money. We consider the fact that you lose, the payer spouses loses their interest deductibility, but the recipient spouse also doesn't have to be taxed on it because a lump sum is not paid on a periodic basis. Um, I always wonder what happens if you make two lump sums, one on Tuesday and one on Wednesday. Now it was periodic. You should be able to deduct that, but I haven't seen anyone challenge that yet. Yeah, so, right. But, but no, right. you can't lump sum sp uh, child support. Um, People just, do, but it, you're not supposed to. I just thought of a way you could do it. This is this follows under the category of bad advice, something you should never do. And we would, and Heather and I would never tell you to do this. Don't ever do it. Just don't pay child support for a long time, and then you'll get <laughs> uh, you'll you'll get a nice arrears bill, and then you can pay it off in one lump sum. And then you get a lump sum, right? Yeah, yeah. don't do that. Pay, I don't pay think child that's support. Right. That's, that's going for the kids. So yeah, that's not a good idea. But what we have done on a file is is um, we want. I mean, we had a child that was nineteen, right? So children are, are no longer may no longer be children in marriage at 18, depending on their post-secondary and some other factors, aspirations. Um, and, uh, and both our parties had a desire for finality. They, one number, let's be done with this, because you know the, the payer spouse not argued that the kid was independent and they're paying, like the payer spouse was paying for the kid was away at college, living in a different city. The payer spouse is paying for the rent, paying for the tuition, paying for an allowance for food and paying the guy money to, so he's kind of like, well, hold on, how I'm giving all that money to the child. How come I'm giving you any money? <laughs> and, and there's an argument. I mean, the kid was home four months a year. And so they wanted one number just to be done with this. And the way we structured the agreement wasn't, wasn't that this is a lump sum of child support. We said, this is an amount. And as a result of this amount, you agree not to pursue child support ever. And should you ever agree break that agreement, this amount you, you're agreeing now will be considered in installments as to whatever that child support obligation ends up ever ends up being. Mm. Um, and uh, and I mean, hopefully we'll never have to see if that holds up. <laughs> I mean, shake, the, the handshake on that should be worth more than the paper written on. But, yeah, but like both sides back. of both sides of my lawyer brain are arguing both sides of that argument in, in yeah. court in the future. But I can see, especially with an adult uh, or a child over the age of majority, where that makes a little more sense and might be given more leeway by the courts as well, because child support's yeah. a little more discretionary in those situations too. So. It's an interesting yeah. solution to uh, bring some a family some finality that they wanted. It stops being so simple as here's the uh, the amount that you have as income. Stick it in the table, and here's the amount you pay child support. That doesn't happen anymore. It's not that there's more analysis that needs to happen once a child is an adult and still needs child support for some reason. So, yeah. Okay. That's well, your field. That's that was good.
that's establishing entitlement. That's uh, that's your guys' world. <laughs> you call me once you've got that done. Yeah, that's right. So, Kim, um, any any last thoughts or questions before we wrap it up here? I think what's become very evident in the conversation today is that there's a very strong connection and relationship between lawyers and accountants, CVVs, like there should be because lawyers don't know everything, accountants don't know everything, but together they can be a pretty formidable team to get the right information across. And uh, I don't think a lot of people, like you guys are in the, that world, but outside of that world, I don't think a lot of people realize that there, there are these like really important professional relationships that are happening behind the scenes and finding experienced uh, professionals out there who've dealt with these issues, no nuances, uh, understand like Cam Cameron's reference case law, like not all accountants understand case law. Like there is a, a specialization in this area. And I think we're so lucky to have them on the show to, you know, bring that forward and for people to realize that it does, it is really important to have the right people um, giving you advice. Mm. Amen, Kim. Any, any last thoughts? No, I just, yeah, I, I couldn't say it better than Kim. I, I agree that folks like Kim and Cameron are so invaluable. And why wouldn't uh, lawyers <laughs> give them a call and get their accounting expertise? I mean, it's just, it's worth its weight in gold. I mean, I could try and struggle through and understand this, but why not leave it to the experts in this area? Hmm. Yeah. Cam, is there anything that you wanted to talk about? You're dying to get off your chest that we didn't cover today. Well, you didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't answer your question about capital dividends yet. So we could we could save that for another day if you oh, want. Nice. To. Perfect. But uh, yeah, no. There's there's a lot of topics here. This is a, it's not a simple area. I mean, if it was simple, no one would debate about it. There there's a lot of opinions. Um, and uh, I, I really think if people are reasonable when when we're discussing these complicated matters and we have a dispute. If people can be reasonable and rational and, and not take aggressive positions one way or the other, we tend to solve these things and, uh, and come to some resolution. And, and the resolution could, you know, you can express that as it's either good for both parties or equally uncomfortable for both parties. That's probably a fair analysis. And you can, you can get to that, you know, position today or you can get it two years and X thousands of dollars less in professional fees and have uh, someone you don't know tell you the way things are going to be or you can decide for yourselves. And that. You can probably tell which way I think is the better way to handle it. So. Yeah, well said. We, Heather Heather was nodding with a smile on her face. She <laughs> <agrees>. <laughs> sure do. Uh, my closing thought is, you know, first I'm just going to justify my bad action and then I'll apologize for it. I'm a word guy. I like words. They're interesting. And I can't resist sometimes making jokes about words. And so I just wanted to apologize for making a joke about brinkmanship at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> I, I like that joke actually. I, I use okay. That. Okay, good, good. Then I uh, then I take it back. I take my apology back. <laughs> All right, Heather. The joke the joke stands. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being our guest and sharing your knowledge today, Cam. I uh, I mean I learned a lot, and uh, I think you just shared so much valuable information in a in a relatively easy to understand way because this is a pretty complicated area of corporations, finances, accounting, and law all blended together. Um, so thanks so much for being our guest today. Happy to do so. 
Uh, this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks to our audience for listening or watching, however you found us today. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer on a future episode, please send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access the number two justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer. Thanks for listening. Bye. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.